0: We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. This talk was recorded at the Lunchtime Campus Bible Study, where it was delivered for university students. Or something like that. Today we're going to be looking... At the powerful Christians, which 2 Timothy chapter 3 deals with. Powerfully Christian. And the first part of that we need to look at uh, really is the world's way of living. There'll be three main headings today. The first one is the world's way. We're in the last days. No, I'm not saying that because I see the signs of the time. Russia's collapse and China's rising up again and Gog and Magog are on the scene In or Israel and Palestine are sitting down at the table conference. It's nothing like that. We're in the last days because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That's why we're in the last days. All that is left to happen is for him to return in judgment. Everything else that needs to happen before God finishes this world has already happened through his life and death and resurrection. And so we are warned by Paul about the character of the last days in chapter 3, verse 1 of our passage before us today. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Not in some far off future distant time, Timothy, But in your lifetime, because notice verse 5, he says, pick it up verse 4, People are treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. Paul is expecting Timothy to be living in the last days. Because it's the consistent pattern of the New Testament that we are in the last days. You'll see it if you look at Acts 2, Acts 2, Uh, 16 and 17. You'll see it if you look at 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. You'd see it if you looked at Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2. They all indicate that we are in the last days now. And so that historians are completely right, they're completely Christian, when they divide the world up as being B.C. and A.D., Everything in the universe happened before Christ came, and there is nothing else to happen other than Christ's return. So we are from here on in, in the year of the Lord. The crucial point in time in the universe is the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, what are the last days going to be like? What should we expect in these last days? In the days when Christ is the risen ruler of the universe, what will be the character of life? Verses 2 to 5 tell us a very sorry and tragic tale. For there's so many wonderful things about this world, there's so many wonderful things about humans, that it only adds to the pathos and the tragedy that we have got it so mucked up that we wreck God's world, that we destroy each other, that we even attack our own very selves. It's a horrid list, verses 2 to 5, which describes life in the now time. Life in the last days, before Christ Jesus returns. That is, from the times of the first centuries and now. But how accurate and apt a description of this is. It really, it's the journalist's list, isn't it? It's the kind of things that tomorrow's newspaper is going to be written out of. There is every chance that you could find every one of these things listed here in tomorrow's newspaper in almost every or any edition that you care to turn up. It will be like that. People are lovers of themselves. It's the norm of our life, a style at the moment. In fact, we're being encouraged to look after number one, that is ourselves. They're lovers of money. That is the judgment that you could write across the whole 1980s in Australian commercial life. They are lovers of money. They are boastful and proud, the bonds and the skaters. They are abusive, the Keatings and the Hawks. They are just like that in large life and in local life. That is what people are like. The the, the hill in which I spent many of my uh, childhood happiest memories watching New South Wales win the cricket over and over again is a place where families don't now easily and happily take their children. More and more families are staying away because the place is just so abusive. It's not that things are getting worse. We just move the dirt around from one corner of the room to the other. At the moment, the level of abuse in public entertainment is massive. 20, 30 years ago, that wasn't particularly the problem. At the moment, there has been a rise in disobedience to parents so that the character of school uh, discipline has changed radically and dramatically because the character of life, of obedience in households and home life has changed radically and dramatically and school teachers are going through a very great loss of nerve, a very great loss of morale. But it's not just the fact that the Griner government's not giving them enough money, not giving them enough resources. Uh, Perfectly true, but it's not just that reason. It's because the whole society has so promoted the cult of the child and the arrogance of the child and has so discredited the idea of parental authority that, of course, it spills across into the society. We are a people who are particularly given to ingratitude. We rarely spend our time in thankfulness. We are given to unholiness. We are a, it just goes on. The list is just the character of life that we have. We are lovers of pleasure, and there's nothing wrong with loving pleasure, but we're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. There is something fundamentally wrong with that, for if if pleasure comes first and God comes second, then morality has just gone straight out the window, hasn't it? Now, it's not everyone all the time is only ever doing verses 2 and 3. That is not what is being said. It is rather the mood of the society that you can see reflected in the media, you can see reflected in people's interests, you see it reflected in the heart of man when you take away any restrictions from him. Like when people first come into university college, or when people first go overseas. Go down to Earl's Court in London and see Australians 10,000 miles away from home, and you will see Australians as they really are. And it is fairly unpleasant. It is an embarrassment. A bunch of yahoos and yobos that you really hope like mad no one can recognise your accent because the character and style of life and the degeneracy that they are practicing is just what we all want to be like only we're too restricted because our grandmother might find out. It is what we are like and what our world is like. But what surprises some although it shouldn't surprise us in the slightest is the turn to the religion in verse 5. For these people are not just the irreligious people, these people are also the religious people, which is why religious people have such a notorious reputation for hypocrisy. But it's as old as Paul, it's as old as B.C. and A.D. That is, they have the form of godliness, but deny its power. The religious people have never been far from the mind. Indeed, the whole passage has really been dealing with it. If you look back in chapter 2 verses 16 to 18, 2 verses 16 to 18, you'll see there that he's warned Timothy to stay away from the godless chatter, the godless teaching of people like Hymenaeus and Philetus who teach that the resurrection has already taken place. They don't teach that we're now living in AD, they're teaching that we're living post AD in this kind of new age way over here that it's all over now. Jesus is no longer king and Jesus is not coming to judge. It's all finished and therefore let's eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. That kind of teaching, he says in verse 16, those uh, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching spreads like gangrene and they have destroyed, they have ruined the faith of people. Of course, that kind of teaching which says we are no longer accountable to God does spread like gangrene it's a very attractive religion that one and it does destroy people and it does lead people to greater and greater ungodliness and so in a series of verses there he tells us about fleeing you'll see it in 2.16 avoid such godless chatter in 2.19 the end of it though everyone who names the name of the lord will turn away from wickedness in 2.22 we're told to flee evil desires of youth and in 2.23 Don't have anything to do. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. And now he's saying at the end of chapter 3 verse 5, have nothing to do with these kinds of religious people. I put in the word religious there very importantly because you'll see he's open to misunderstanding. He's open to be thinking that he's saying don't have anything to do with anybody who is boastful, anybody who is disobedient to Perry, anybody who's proud, anybody abusive, anybody unholy. And of course if you don't have anything to do with anyone like that, you won't have anything to do with anyone. That's part of the problem, isn't it? That the whole world is full of sin. He's open to this misunderstanding. You can see if you ever chase out in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 9, where he says don't have anything to do with immoral men. Not at all meaning the immoral of this world for then you would have to leave the world. But anyone who names the name of brother and is living in open immorality, don't associate with him. And so it's don't associate with those purveyors of religion who in actual fact only have the form of religion and not the power of religion. Don't associate with them. Don't have anything to do with them. You find a parallel also in 2 John 3, 2 John 3, which many people take as the Jehovah's Witness verse. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. 2 John verses 10 and 11. 2 John only has one chapter, so you don't need chapters there. 10 to 11. Right? It's that we do not associate with such a one, do not help them now why is it like this well look back to the end of chapter 2 we were finishing last week in verse 25 26 those who oppose the man of god he must gently instruct in the hope god will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will The devil has taken people captive. The opponents to the gospel have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. That is, alternative teachings of Christianity are not just spiritually neutral, like relativism would have us to believe, you know, everybody's opinion is as good as everybody else's opinion. That's not true when there is a truth in the world. See, everybody's opinion is as good as everybody else's opinion when there's no truth in the world. But when there is truth in the world, then everybody's opinion is not as good as everybody else's opinion. The opinion that's best is the opinion that's right. That's the opinion that matters. I gave an opinion last week, Uh, a few days ago, I gave a very firm opinion. I was quite sure that Scotland would beat England and New Zealand would beat Australia in the semi-finals of the rugby union. Now, I'm happy to confess to you that my opinion wasn't worth a bumper. My opinion was completely wrong on both. Well, I don't need to tell you about that. You all sat up watching it, didn't you? On both matches, it was a complete and utter disaster. Now, would you like my opinion about who's going to win the grand final? Not really. I don't want it myself. I think well, I obviously can't pick a winner. If I tried to, I mean, it's a 50-50 game, rugby union. Either one side wins or the other. I can't pick them at all. Don't try me on a horse race. It's a complete loss. There, it's got 20 people could win. You see, those opinions were wrong opinions. And we need to say they were wrong. There's no great embarrassment. They say, well, Philip, your opinion was as good as anybody else's. It wasn't. Other people picked the right, the right teams. And they are right. And I am wrong. It's as simple as that. And there's no great difficulty of saying you're wrong. But, of course, the stupidity is to carry on and say, well, I think Scotland really did win. I mean, deep down they did. I don't know about the scoreboard. I mean in their heart of hearts they know they won and the, the English know they lost. it's just an absurdity isn't it you're off with a, with, with a cuckoo at that stage of the game aren't you now those who are teaching opposite to the gospel cannot be right if the gospel is right and if the gospel is right they themselves have been taken captive by the devil to do his work that is to teach lies because he is the father of lies And lying is his very native breath. It's what he always wants to do to distort the truth of God. So look what's said about them. Three things are said about them here. Firstly, they have the form of religion, but not the power in verse 5. They have the form of religion, but not the power. That is the power to change, verses 2 to 5 the power to change lives from boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy people into different kinds of people. They don't have the power to do that. All they have is the form of religion. Now, it can be, what shall I call it, pagan religions of idolatry, etc. It could be Christianized religions like the Judaizers. doesn't matter much. It's the fact that they have the external forms of religiosity, the external forms of spirituality. They sing their hymns, they light their candles, they meditate, they read their books, they carry around their Bible, they practice their, their Lord's Supper. They Whatever it may be, they have the forms of it, but they don't have the reality of it. They don't have the power that is actually the Spirit of God at work. It's easy to be religious. It's easy to be religiously formal, isn't it? Sometimes it's incredibly boring, sometimes it's fascinating... Sometimes it's beautiful, and sometimes it's just peculiar. But it's easy to do it. But all that religious form is an illusion and a delusion. Religious form has nothing to do with religious reality, with spirituality. Now let me use Anglicanism, the Church of England, to illustrate and demonstrate this for you. And, And I use the Anglican Church because I'm a member of the Anglican Church and ordained in the ministry of the Anglican Church and that means I can avoid some accusation of being bigoted because I'm not attacking some other group in particular. I've got to do this because the other day someone came to me, one of my family members had heard a report that I was anti, that I hated Catholics. Now friends, this is not true. I don't hate Catholics. I don't want to be very clear on it. I loathe and detest Catholicism, but I don't hate Catholics. Those two things are very, very different. You see, I hate Melbourne. And I don't hate Melbourne. I just think Melbourne's just a terribly boring city. I've always been bored when I've been in Melbourne. The whole time I've been. It's the only city in Sydney that I've ever in Australia I've ever been bored in. But I'm always bored in Melbourne. I just find it a boring city and not a very pleasant one. But that's got nothing to do with another Melbourne history. I like Melbourne. That's what I'm trying to communicate. Right? And I love Adelaide. I think Adelaide's a beautiful city, a very pretty city. That doesn't mean I love Adelaideans particularly, it just means I love the city. Now I hate and detest Catholicism because I think it's a delusion of the devil. But that doesn't mean I hate Catholics. In fact, I desperately love and am concerned about Catholics that we might liberate them from the delusion that they unfortunately have been born into and raised in. But it's got nothing to do with now. Because people so easily misunderstand, then, when you oppose something that you therefore are opposing some people, let me attack Anglicanism, because I am one myself. And you say, yeah, well, you hate yourself. Okay, well, you've got problems, not mine. You see, in the Church of England, there are all kinds of people, ministers, bishops of the Anglican Church, archbishops, who dress themselves up like Santa Claus and and the Mikado, all in one. who chant psalms like they're owls who are out mating late at night, who diligently, faithfully, loyally read the prayer book services day in, day out, morning and evening, and who are basically unconverted pagans. They wouldn't know the gospel of Jesus Christ if they fell over it, and some of them do know the gospel of Jesus Christ and hate it with a detestation and a loathing because it holds them in judgment and they do everything they can to stop gospel preaching Anglicans coming into their part of the city or their part of the parish or into their city to preach the gospel. Now that is true of Anglicans, bishops, priests, laymen, deacons in all kinds of parts of the world. I had one of the archbishops speaking in a meeting I went to where he denied that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He denied that Jesus was now alive other than in the Eucharist. When he was saying mass, which is not an Anglican word, then he had the presence of the unseen, unknown, unknowable amongst him. That is, he had the real presence of the real absence because Jesus is actually rotting in a tomb somewhere. The man is a pagan. He happens to be an archbishop of the Anglican church. Now, these people who are unconverted do not know the dynamic power of the gospel. They do not know how to see people changed they do not know how to see change in themselves. And it is not surprising, therefore, to see those parts of the Anglican Church dominated by things like the homosexual lobby. There are some parts of the Anglican Church that if you're not a homosexual clergyman, you'll have very great difficulty getting, getting ordained into the Anglican ministry. That just shows how far off the beam they are about Christianity. Now, what I say about Anglicanism, which I belong to, can you imagine what I think of Christian Science, Mormons, Moonies, the Sydney Church of Christ and on and on goes the list. But I won't tell you about them, you just imagine for a while. They have the form, but they don't know the power. It's very easy to fall into that trap. Amongst these kinds of people are those who use religion entering into people's homes Uh, That is, when the husband's away, to train control, especially over vulnerable women, weak-willed women. Now, he's not saying all women are weak-willed, otherwise he wouldn't have to talk about weak-willed ones, would he? Right, that would be a Rex Mossop, a, a tautology. To say Rex Mossop, a tautology, is a tautology, I guess. That would be to be a tautology, wouldn't it? To say all women are weak-willed, you don't then need to call them weak-willed women. But there are such things as weak-willed women. They do exist. I'm not making any comment as to whether there are or are not weak-willed men, but I'm saying there are weak-willed women who are easy prey to the cultist, easy prey to the religious person, especially when you play upon guilt... And you pay evil desires, this is possibly too strong a phrase in translation, when you pay upon emotions, strong passions. For those who are left at home, and who frequently are left at home with small children, and who have great senses of guilt, and a burden of guilt and sin, and have got strong passions, they are easy prey to religious cultists. That is, a, that is well known. I mean, anyone can try. If you're going to set up a cult or religion, you want to try and manipulate people, that's one of the easiest groups in the community to get to. And uh, that's the way to go. That certainly is the way that many cults do go. These women are like university theology faculties. They're always learning, verse 7, but never coming to the truth always following the new teaching, always following the new fad and fashion, following the new guru who's arrived in the land, who's telling them the new thing, but they never actually come to understand what the truth is because they are not dealing with the guilt through the death of Jesus Christ and the gospel which would relieve them and release them. They are rather being used by teachers of the latest newfangled invention in religion. You check the religions and you'll see, especially the cults like Scientology, etc., and their capacity, and the Sydney Church of Christ here in, on our campus, and I'd warn you again of it, their capacity for pay, playing on people's guilt is massive. One woman who was picked up by the Sydney Church of Christ told me that daily she had to report into her disciple about all the sins she had committed in the previous 24 hours. For 12 months... Every day, she had a half-hour conversation about all the things she had done wrong in the last 24 hours. You see, that is to put people into bondage. That is not to cure guilt. That is not to resolve guilt. That is to build guilt. That is to manipulate guilt and to manipulate a person into the cult which God has marvelously, miraculously liberated her from and it fits in with today's passage. I'll tell you, she, do you know how she got liberated? It's a wonderful story. She got liberated because they told her she had to read the Bible and she did and after a while of reading the Bible she worked out that what they were on about was completely different to what the Bible was on about so she went and rang up some people to find out about Christianity because she knew they didn't have it so they did a terrible thing they put her into bondage for 12 months or more they did a wonderful thing they pointed her to the Bible which got her out of the bondage more of that in a little while because you'll find about the power in a few moments these people also oppose the truth like Jeans and Jambres. That's a great problem for Bible readers. Who are Janes and Jambres, or however you pronounce them? They are the Jewish names for the magicians of Pharaoh who opposed Moses back in Exodus 7. Their name is not used in the Bible in the Old Testament, but it is their traditional names. And so that's... Uh, Paul and his contemporaries would know who he's referring to, Janes and Jambres. They opposed Moses... So also, these people will oppose the truth. They are rejected by God, and in time they will be seen to be failures, and their teaching will seem to be folly. It's very important, friends, that Christians keep studying history. Because when you study history, you keep seeing the stupidity of heretics. Today's heretics are very persuasive, very clever know all kinds of things you've never heard about before, use all kinds of arguments you've never thought about before. But if you've got a sense of history, you will know that every decade a new group rise up with a new theory that takes 30 or 40 years to disprove, by which time a whole generation has been persuaded. But when you look back, there is this stupid idea and that stupid idea and this stupid idea and that stupid idea. And so when a new idea comes to you, you say, Ah, yeah, okay, well... Give us time, we'll see how stupid that one is too. In time, they're all showing up as being very, very stupid. At the time, well, it's quite confusing. It's quite bewildering to many people, especially the vulnerable, especially those who have not actually been freed from their sense of guilt through the death of Jesus on their behalf. So the last times are times of worldly religions. They're powerless but they'll be around in their destructive, captivating uh, fashion. They don't know the power of God, but they sure know the power of the evil one, as they oppose the gospel, even though they'll fail. Well, friends, it's like that today, isn't it? The New Age movement. We're very religious. Huge percentage of Australians, 80 or so percent of Australians, believe in God, pray to God, and yet they go on in their life completely unchanged by God. You see it in the rising of cults and sects which keep capturing people and putting them on the guilt trip. You see it in the following of fads and fashions of ideas. You see it in the love that people have of miracle workers who con people about healing and who take money from people and take their hope away from them when they're not healed as well. We are particularly gullible to the religiously immoral. It's what Paul warned us we'd be like. That's what Paul warned us the world to be like. That's exactly what the world is like. But you'll also notice that there are two inevitabilities about it all. In verses 11 and 13, because the world is sinful and in opposition to the truth, and because of the captivity to the devil, certain inevitabilities follow, two of which are mentioned here. In verse 11... And 12, you see the inevitability of persecution. Anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul himself is being persecuted. If we weren't in a sinful world, those who preach the truth would not be persecuted. Double negative. If we were in a perfect world, those who preach the truth would not be persecuted. Because we live in a sinful world, because we live in a religiously sinful world, those who teach the truth, those who live by the truth will inevitably be persecuted. It is just the way it is. For if you are going to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be constantly swimming against the current of your community. You'll be constantly holding the world's values in question. You'll be constantly the odd man out and on, on re- subjects of religion and morality and lifestyle. And therefore, because you will not go along with other people's greedy shady business practices because you won't go along with the self-indulgent decadence of their parties they won't like you they will oppose you and if you care to stand up and call them to account if you insist that Jesus is the Christ who has who has won the battle over evil and is going to hold them in judgment one day then they'll hate your guts they've got to and the option is to say you're right and change or to say you're wrong and try and stop you. That's the only options they've got available to them. It was fascinating this year at Sydney University where the Oni magazine which has been one of the forefront of anti-censorship battles for the last 30 or 40 years and who purposely went out of their way to court trials in court so as to be able to break the censorship laws of our society ran a couple of articles seeking to censor the Evangelical Union of the Sydney University and myself in particular for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can say, you can do, you can write, you can draw anything in Oniswa, anything on the campus of Sydney University, except preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the one thing that is too offensive for words. And so a movement was taken up from the Students' Representative Council there to the University Senate, asking that the Christian Union at the U- Sydney University be disbanded, because it cared to preach the truth. It's the one unforgivable It's the one intolerable in a totally tolerant university. Of course, it's not like that here. I mean, this is obviously a finer institution and all that kind of thing. (laughs) As you go out from university into the work situation, let me assure you, if you care to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, your career is in jeopardy. I've been talking in recent times with two of my friends, one who keeps refusing to be involved with insider trading on the stock market. His clients and his fellow workers do not like him, especially as he knows the dirt about them. I am speaking to an accountant who was criticised by his Uh, by his employees, one of the biggest accountancy firms in Australia, whose name you all know, I won't mention it, but it's one of the big, you know, seven or whatever they call themselves. They criticised him because he was auditing the books of the customers too carefully. And the customers were threatening to take their business to other accountants who wouldn't be so careful in auditing the books. What's the point of auditing the books if you're not going to do it carefully? The point is to appear that the books have been kept straight when in fact they're as crooked as crooked. That's what it is. One of the biggest companies in Australia, worldwide company, that doesn't want its employees to audit books honestly, just wants to charge for it to appear to be done. How do you think he stands as a Christian man when he actually insists on doing it properly? It's a good way to get your career sidelined, isn't it? anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted Uh, not every day not all the time every day not in every situation but somewhere down the line get used to the idea friends it's just life for those who are in Christ Jesus the second inevitability is in verse 13 that is deception you see, the devil's work is lies. That's his power. That's his strength. That's the whole nature of what he's on about, his deception. And so false teachers just go from bad to worse because that having believed a lie, they keep on teaching the lie until they are not only deceiving other people, but deceiving themselves. That is the nature of the evil power. I feel very sorry for people in Jehovah's Witnesses, like the Catholics. I love the people in the Jehovah's Witness movement, but I hate the Witness movement because it is a dreadful lie, just like Catholicism is a dreadful lie. In 1914, they said the world was going to come to an end. It didn't. In 1925, they predicted the world would come to an end. It didn't. In 1975, they predicted the world would come to an end. It didn't. And they are still out there knocking on doors. Three times uh, their predictions have proved wrong. I, at least, have the grace to tell you that I was wrong on the subject of Scotland and on the subject of uh, the All Blacks. They don't admit they were wrong. Jesus did come in 1914. He just came invisibly. You didn't see him, that's all. They never are wrong, and yet they keep changing the date of the end of the world after the date has passed. They are self-deceived, friends, and they seek to deceive other people. They just go on and on and on into stupidity. They are self-deceived, friends, and they seek to deceive other people. They just go on and on and on into stupidity. All right. The second theme is much shorter and quicker. That is, there is in this chapter the alternative. Not only do you see the world's way, but you see the powerful way, which I have devised a lovely title for, the pedestrian power. Now, this is not a way to walk more powerfully, like power walking which I understand some people pay money to learn how to do it. Nor is it a political party. You know, you've got the green power and the grey power. Here's the pedestrian power. Rather, this is a power which is pedestrian. A power of God which people will not recognise and see because it's commonplace, prosaic and dull, to use the Macquarie Dictionary definition of pedestrian. It's the kind of thing you'd never recognise as the power. But it is the power of God. It's not the form, but what we're talking about here is the power of God. The power that is very different of chapter 3, verse 5. The power whereby you will see people radically changed. It's not the power to capture weak-willed, guilty, vacillating, vulnerable women. No, it's the power to change people's lives so that those living in the last days will no longer live the way the world lives. But there is real power, it's the kind of real power that every politician, every treasurer, every reformer, every legislator, every educator would really like. That is the power to change people. The great frustration of being in government is all you can change is the laws. You can't change the people. And because all you're doing is changing the laws, people find new ways around the laws. Every treasurer is frustrated. That's why we've got this massive tax law that grows and grows and grows, because he can't actually change people. All he can do is change the law. But what we're talking about is the changing of people. And you see it in what Timothy knew. Now what did Timothy know? Well, three things, three times it talks about you know, you know, you know. Verse 10 and 11. What did Timothy know there? He knew Paul. He knew Paul's teaching. And he knew his life, his lifestyle. Because he travelled with him. And he knew in his life his aim... And he knew the character of his life, and he knew the persecutions of his life. You, however, know all about my teaching, the way of li- my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance. But also notice my persecutions and suffering, and what kinds of things happen to me in these cities. You know me, that I am not one who makes his way into homes and captures weak-willed women. You know what I suffered for the truth, and you know what I have taught. Second thing he knows in verse 14, he knows those who taught him from his beginning. Who are they? Well, from 1, 5 and uh, 6, you'll see it's Lois and Eunice. I can't remember which is which now. Lois and Eunice. One's his mother, one's his grandmother. They are the people who taught him. That is, he is close enough to the teachers of the word of God, the gospel that he has been taught, to know who they are, to know the character of their life, to know the outcome of their life, to know that they are not charlatans and not tricksters. Beware of visiting preachers. Beware of itinerant preachers, people who come into the city and leave one week later. Because you don't know them. You don't know what they're doing. You don't know the character of life that they live. You don't know if it matches up to what they're teaching. But your own family, you know all about your family. You know if your parents are actually backing up what they say by what they do. He can say, oh, you know them also. You know their character of life. And you'll know what you have been convinced of. What you have learned from them and what you've been convinced of. Notice in both these things, in this one and that one, it's about learning. You know the words that I taught. You know what you've learnt from them and been convinced. Because the third one, of course, is that you know the scriptures. The scriptures that they've taught you, the scriptures I've taught you, that can make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. The scriptures don't do it without Jesus Christ but they are able to make you wise for salvation. That's what the scriptures are. They're not a magic potion. The scriptures are not a trinket. They're not something that you hang up on the mantelpiece or kiss or wrap up in a shawl. They are something that you read and understand. They're something that are able to make you wise. You don't make yourself wise to the scriptures by getting up every morning and rubbing it against your head. That is not what you do with the Bible. The Bible's got to be read. That's why it's got to be translated into our English. That's part of the reason I hate Catholicism, because for centuries they kept it locked up in Latin so that no one could read it. That's why I hate Catholicism, because they wouldn't let people read the Bible in their own language until 1961. 1961. I was alive and can remember when they finally gave permission for the Bible to be translated into English. See, they don't believe the Bible it's a terrible thing only now and now they're saying of course, what's the church's book that's why we're allowed to keep control of it and have the authorized official teachings of it and the authorized official interpretation of it so as to make sure that even today people do not read it and understand it for themselves they keep the scriptures from the people and have for centuries done so it's a great wickedness friends a great great wickedness the scriptures make you wise for salvation because they are to be read. They are to be marked. They are to be learned. They are to be discussed. They are to be taught. They are to be understood. And as you read and understand the scriptures and see the one they point to, namely Jesus, you find salvation through faith in him. Because these scriptures are breathed by God, exhaled. When you're talking unless you're a particular tribe in southern parts of Africa, you talk with your breath going out. They talk with their breath going in. Anyway, only way, very hard to do it. You can practice later on. But for the rest of us, you talk with your, your breath going out. And when God talks, this is what comes out. The scriptures. They are his breath. They are his spirit. They are the ways you know God because he has spoken. And therefore they're useful. Look how they're useful. We've got a little map here of how they're useful I don't know if it comes up in the overhead or not whether it's too thin for us so, I know that's a wonderful thing. that's how they're useful because as you go on the path of life they teach you how to go and when you wander off they rebuke you and they not only rebuke you they correct you and show you the way back on so that you'll be trained in righteousness That's what it is. That's the four things, and that's what the four things are about, right? They show you the right way to go in the first place, and as you move off it, they rebuke you, and as you, they correct you to get you back on it. And they train you in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work that God wants them to do. That is what the scriptures do, and that, friends, is the power of God. It is the power of God. Now, I'm not talking about my little picture here, but it is pedestrian. Sorry about the pun. I just realized at this very moment that there is a small pun in that. It is very pedestrian, that kind of power of God. Because it doesn't look anything, does it? I mean, if you say, look, I'm going to give you the power of God, you say, oh, what's going to happen now? You know, will Steven Spielberg be able to photograph it? Will it be bigger and better than kind of... The power of god is the word of god because that's how god created the world the power of god is what changes people because it relieves us of guilt because it brings us true forgiveness the power of god is what we must continue to walk in and so what timothy is challenged to in this chapter chapter 3 verse 14 is to continue in what you have learnt. the power of god changes you as you continue to listen to the word of god because Timothy has this spiritual power not the dead formalism but the one who knows the gospel truth that's been taught to him in words it's been modelled to him by the lives of those who've taught him that is found in scriptures and that he has been convinced of it looks so dull doesn't it look so and nothing and yet if he continues in these things then he will experience the change of life See, we want an instant fix, don't we? God zap us so that I'll be changed immediately. Well, God does zap us with forgiveness but then we have the rest of our lifetime to the long slow steady growth of learning, of being rebuked of being corrected and being trained by the word of God which is what campus Bible study is about, I'm preaching to the converted at this point aren't I, here week 13 you've turned up still to hear the word of God praise God, that's great news make sure you make the 14th too, keep working at the word of God over summer make sure you get away to places where you'll be taught the word of God right, because it is by the hearing the word of god by thinking about the word of god by being convinced of the word of god that you are trained that you are taught that you are rebuked that you are corrected that you are actually changed to be different to this world which is the three points that come on this last uh, section that is the whole character of powerful christianity is this it's that we no longer live the way of the world the world cannot change it's unable to change it never changes we are in the last times, and it hasn't changed since Paul wrote this letter. It won't change, and it can't change, but the gospel changes us. Not only does it changes in the beginning when we're dramatically turned around by hearing the news, but it changes us profoundly and deeply as we go on being changed, listening to the Word of God, because God's powerful agent in this world is the ministry of the Word of God, the ministry which will always lead to suffering and persecution because people don't want the truth. But the word, which is powerful enough to overcome the suffering and persecution and transform individuals and transform society. And there are people sitting in this room who can bear testimony to that transformation. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, for your son and his victory on the cross his resurrection, and that we are in the last days. And we do pray, Father, that you would help us to be people who are changed, who know the spiritual reality of your power in our lives. For we know your word of the gospel, which has brought us forgiveness. And we know your word of the gospel, which is changing us to be more like Christ. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.